Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We're in Mark 13, so this, as Vanessa said, is the first Sunday of Advent, Advent being the four weeks of December leading up to Christmas, and we're going to use this year the traditional themes of Advent, which are hope, peace, joy, and love. Hope, peace, joy, and love, and our prayer is that collectively and individually, we would all experience those realities. Those are benefits of Jesus's incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, is that we would all experience hope, peace, joy, and love. And we're gonna use what, what's called the lectionary for our passages. So the lectionary is a set of assigned readings or a collection of readings, and they're assigned to each Sunday. And so that's where the passages are coming from. So we're, in this sense, we're kind of tracking with the broader church around the world for these next four weeks. These are passages that many churches will be looking at. Today, we're gonna talk about hope. Hope is one of those uh, truths or concepts where there's a pretty stark difference between kind of hope within the church and hope outside of the church. In general, when we hear the word hope out there in our community, what people mean is wish. This is something that I want to some degree, but I'm not super confident that it's going to happen. And so as a way of tempering my expectations, I say, I hope. I hope Georgia makes the college football playoffs. Not super confident. And so I'm tempering my expectations. That's not what hope looks like in the church. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of a better future. Those two things really pull apart. In the world, in general, people use the word hope when they don't have confidence about what's gonna happen. In the church, we use hope when we do have confidence about that future. So that's the biblical definition, a confident expectation of a better future. For me, and, and you don't have to go with me on this, but for me, my hope, if I'm looking at hope, what's my hope based on? My hope is based on the conviction that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. That's why I have hope. I don't have a confident expectation of a better future because I think whoever wins in 2024 is gonna save the day or because I think the Fed's gonna do a great job managing inflation or because I think we're gonna figure out climate change or because I think AI is gonna usher in some utopian age. That's not, my hope is not in any of those things. Those things matter and those things impact my life and your life, but my hope is not in any particular person or any particular outcome. Again, those things have an impact on me, but my ultimate hope, the reason I have a confident expectation of a better future is because I believe God is authoring that better future. Does that make sense? So even underneath that, I would say, our hope as believers, it's based on the historical reality of Jesus's resurrection. There is no better attested fact in ancient history than Jesus being raised from the dead. And so our hope is not wishful thinking. It's not lucky rabbit's foot, it's not crossing our fingers, it's none of that. It's based on the historical reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if he's been raised from the dead, then he is who he claimed to be. He's the Messiah, he's the son of God. He is defeating those who would thwart a better future, sin, Satan, death. He's made a relationship with the father possible. That's the ultimate better future for us, to be reconciled to God. He's establishing his kingdom of joy and peace and righteousness on the earth. 
So hope, confident expectation of a better future, built on this foundation or this, this conviction that God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And that's based on this historical reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. Hope, we're gonna read a very not Christmassy passage from Mark 13 and just a little bit of context. So the temple, you'll see a picture behind me. It's this incredible ornate, massive structure. It's the center of Jewish religion, Jewish identity. It's the center of the Jewish nation. And Jesus tells his disciples, it's all coming down. The whole thing, it's coming down. That would be like somebody saying to us, the White House is coming down. It's more than just the destruction of a building. It's again, it's this national symbol. And what are all of the things that would have to happen for that building to be torn down? And he says, it's gonna happen. And they say, when? And what are gonna be the signs so that we know that day is approaching? And in Mark 13, Jesus is answering the, that question. What gets confusing for us is he actually uses, he's, he, he refers to two future events and he kind of weaves them together. So he takes the destruction of the temple and he takes his return. We call that the second coming. The first coming of Jesus was the first Christmas. That's what we're celebrating now in Bethlehem and the manger and Joseph and Mary and all that. That's Jesus's first arrival or first coming. And he's going to return. That's Revelation 19. That's where we see that most clearly. And what he's, what he's doing in Mark 13 is he's saying, okay, the destruction of the temple and my return, they're not the same, but they have a lot of similarities. And so I'm gonna talk about them together. And he weaves these two strands together and we have to kind of pick them apart a little bit to understand fully what's going on. And, and the, the key features that the destruction of the temple and Jesus's return have in common are one, it, the, the, the event itself is certain, but the timing is not. This is going to happen, but I just don't know when. So those of you who are moms, you know, I know I'm gonna have this baby, but I don't know exactly when. And there'll be certain signs that let me know. It doesn't really matter what the due date is. I know it's gonna happen, but I don't know exactly when. That's the destruction of the temple and that's Jesus's return. They're certain, but again, the timing is not clear. And the, the, we'll say the season leading up to those events will be difficult. There will be suffering. He, Jesus uses the word tribulation, a squeezing leading up to that. So the, both those events, the destruction of the temple and Jesus's return, certain, timing, unknown, difficulty leading up to that. So he can weave those two things together. So what we're gonna look at is the tail end of Jesus's answer to the question, when's the temple gonna be destroyed and what are gonna be the signs? So starting in verse 24. But in those days following that distress, so that's the difficulty, the suffering, the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. 
what I say to you, I say to everyone. Watch. So we're not gonna necessarily um, pick this passage apart like we would normally do because our theme is hope. And so that's really what we're focused on. But maybe just a, a bit on it to orient us. Looking at those three paragraphs, main idea in each paragraph. The first paragraph, Jesus is, re- is referring to his return. And he's saying, I'm, I'm coming back. And my return is gonna be accompanied by these cosmic signs. And nobody knows what those things mean. Nobody knows what it means for the sun to turn dark, for the moon to not give light. We don't, we don't know. But he's saying, my, my return is gonna be accompanied by these undeniable signs. So his first coming was actually accompanied by a cosmic sign as well. The star in Bethlehem was a cosmic sign. But as far as we know, only a handful of people understood it. Just the wise men or the the magi, they're the only ones that understood the sign. And Jesus is saying, when I return, it's gonna be different. The signs are gonna be much more overt, much more obvious. Nobody's gonna be able to deny them. And that's one of the major differences between Jesus's first coming and his second. First coming, he comes as a, baby to a, a rel- to an obscure family in the Middle East. His second coming is on a white horse coming out of the sky. So that it's way different. And again, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's gonna be plain to everyone. So he's coming back and he's gonna gather his people to himself. That's the first paragraph. The second, Jesus goes back to talking about the timing of the destruction of the temple. And he says, just like when a fig tree has leaves, you know, summer's coming. Or just like when, Moms, when you feel that birth, those labor pains, you know it's time. He's saying the signs that I told you about in verses five through 22, particularly the abomination which causes desolation, which is for a sign, it's a confusing one. He says, when you see those things, then the time is near. And actually, he says, y'all listening to me, within your generation, the temple is gonna be destroyed. It's gonna happen within your lifetimes, and it does. He says that sometime between 30 and 33 AD and the Romans destroy the temple in 70 AD. Within 40 years of him saying that, the temple is is destroyed. And then the last paragraph, he goes back to his return. So it's his return, destruction of the temple, his return. He goes back to his return, and he says, during this period where you're waiting on me to return, here's how you need to posture yourself. And he gives them three commands. He says you need to be on your guard, you need to be alert, and you need to watch. You need to be on your guard, you need to be seeing. That's what that means literally, be seeing. Keep your eyes open, we would say. You need to be alert, you need to be awake. We might say don't fall asleep at the wheel. Both of those things put together, be ready. You need to be ready for my return. It's, it's coming, but you don't know exactly when, and so you need to be ready. And then he says watch, which means to be vigilant. The period prior to Jesus's return, which is where we're living, it's where we've been for the last 2,000 years, Jesus says it's gonna be, there's gonna be difficulties during that time. The love of many will grow cold. There'll be false teachers, false prophets, false messiahs who'll try to lead the elect astray. It's gonna be, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be vigilant, guarding our own hearts, recognizing that the season leading up to his return, and that word season is very undefined, is gonna present some some difficulties, some challenges, and some dangers to our faith. Again, not very Christmassy, and you may be saying, what's the connection back? So for at least 400 years, so Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and there's 400 years before Jesus is born, and those are kind of called the silent years. We don't hear a lot from God. At least during those 400 years, there was an increase in expectation among at least a portion of the Jewish people. 
They were ready for the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, there are these promises, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, you're gonna be delivered. And then we don't know how strongly that was felt, but during those 400 years, there's pretty good evidence that people really did start to hunger for the Messiah to come. They had a hope. The deliverer, the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna make things right. And they were waiting on him to arrive. And that's exactly where we are. We have a hope. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus's return. That's when things are gonna get made right. We can have incremental improvement and growth now, but ultimately everything's not gonna be made right until Jesus returns. That's our ultimate hope. And we know he's coming back. We just don't know exactly when. And so just like during that, those silent years, they're waiting on the first coming of the Messiah. We're waiting on his second. That's our hope. And we're waiting on God to act. So to hope is to wait. There's no way to hope and not wait. Romans 8, 25 says really clearly, we don't hope for what we already have. When you were little and you hoped for a bike, once you got it, you didn't hope for it anymore because you had it. We hope for what we don't yet have. So to hope is to wait. And waiting can be not the easiest thing in the world to do. So if we're thinking about being awake and being alert and being on guard and seeing and watching, I wanna put some skin on that in a different way. So we're gonna talk about waiting. Ultimately, that's what we're doing. We're getting ready and we're guarding our hearts. I'm just not gonna use that language. So there was a a, a woman that we read about in Luke. She gets three verses, that's it. But she can teach us a lot about how to wait for our hope to be fulfilled. So this is Luke 2. And it's a few verses about a woman named Anna. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them. So that's coming up to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. At that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child who's Jesus to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna's a prophet. She's someone who hears from God. And when Jesus is brought to the temple by Joseph and Mary, he's 40 days old. Everybody's kid's cute, but they all look the same, right? At 40 days, they all look the same. The Holy Spirit stirs her heart. That, that kid, six weeks old, that kid, he's the one that you've been praying for. He's the one who's gonna make everything right. He's the Messiah. The Holy Spirit tells her that, and as a prophet, she tells everybody else who's waiting on the redemption of Israel. That idea of the redemption of Israel goes all the way back to Isaiah 42, at least. So you're talking about 700 years before. People have been waiting a long time for the redemption of Israel, and Anna, prompted by the Holy Spirit, says, this baby, at 40 days old, he's the one that we've been waiting for. What I want us to see is what had Anna been doing in the temple? And that's, that's the challenge and the encouragement to us. Again, we're just, she, she's waiting. We're waiting. We're, she's waiting for Jesus to come the first time. We're waiting for him to come the second time. And we can learn some things from her. Where was she waiting? She was waiting in the temple. The temple at that point was, was considered the place on earth where God lived. Everybody knows God lives in the heavens. They knew that too. But if he had an address on earth, it was the temple. If you wanted to be near God, you went to the temple. That was the place of worship. And Anna had been there. Says so she was there night and day. She didn't leave. That's hyperbole, but you get the picture. She was constantly at the temple. 
What was she doing in the temple? She was worshiping and fasting and praying. So for us, taking that away, we would say she was in the presence of God. She was in the temple and she was engaged with God. She was worshiping and fasting and praying. And that's the encouragement and challenge for us. And recognize Anna had done those things in that place for a really, really long time. Probably married at 14. That was a normal age to get married at that time. Widow at 21. And then that idea of 84 can be understood two different ways. It either means she's 84 years old, and so she had been in the temple for 63 years as a widow, or it could mean that she had been a widow for 84 years and she was 105. That's unusual, but not unheard of. If we take the, even the more conservative approach and we say Anne is 84 years old, she spent 63 years in the temple, day and night, worshiping and fasting and praying. And that's the challenge and that's the encouragement to us. So many of you have not been alive for 63 years. That's 1960. That's that's how long for her. She's showing up, worshiping and fasting and praying day and night. It's not easy to live like Anna and I don't want to pretend that it is. It's not easy to do what she did. You have to have a pretty courageous commitment to the Lord or a bold love, if you like that phrase better, to wait the way that Anna waited. To hope is to wait and to wait is to live in tension. We talked about this last week, Psalm 40. I I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned and he heard my cry. That phrase, wait patiently, translates a Hebrew word that has the idea of tension at the core of it. To wait is to live in tension. To hope is to wait and to wait is to live in tension. And it's difficult to say, I'm gonna stay close to and engage with a God who's allowing me to live in tension. Nobody enjoys tension. We want to, we want to cut through it to resolve it as quickly as we can. And when we look at God and say, you could fix this, pretty, this isn't too hard for you. You could fix this and you're not. That could be difficult for us to say, I'm gonna continue to draw near and to engage with one who's actually seems to be creating or at least allowing the tension to continue in my life. Proverbs 13, we've talked about this before. Hope deferred makes the heart sick or makes the heart faint or makes the heart weak. We get heart sick when the things that we're hoping for are not realized. And it can be difficult to continue to engage with a God who we would say, well, you're actually the one making my heart sick. We might not say it that directly, but that's, that's the feeling that we have. My heart is faint. My heart is weak because of these circumstances that you could actually change and you're not. And so for many of us, that causes us to step back from him, either literally to step back from him or to harden our hearts. That's what we're doing. We're protecting ourselves. That's what we're doing. We're protecting ourselves from living in that tension, which is, again, not belittling, like very difficult to do. Anna was like, sometimes in my mind, I picture her as like this little old, you know, four foot eight lady, but she may have been, but she was a stud. She was. To do what she did for as long as she did it, that's not easy. There's a, there's a, a courage and a commitment to continue to stay close and to engage with a God who has not yet responded to your prayers. 
And from what we can tell, she wasn't praying rote prayer. She was fasting as well. Like she was, she's fully engaged with him in intercession. And at least part of what she's praying for is for Jesus's arrival. She doesn't know that's what she's praying for. She's praying for the Messiah and for the redemption of Israel. So for us, just a couple of things for you to think about. Again, living in the temple, there, there is no temple anymore. John 4, we can worship God on this mountain or that mountain. It's spirit and truth. The location doesn't matter. So for worship for us, I think there are other ways of being in the presence of God. But for me, worship is one of the, it's one of the broadest doorways to be in the presence of God. And, and that would be an encouragement for me as you're waiting to say, I'm gonna kind of quote, be in the temple like Anna. I would say that means you continue to worship. A lot of this ties directly into what we talked about last week around Thanksgiving. So I'm not gonna unpack it a lot. You can go back and listen. But when it comes to worship, we worship God because he's worthy. And so, so you can think about that again through the, the lens that we used last week. We can always worship God for who he is, for his character, because that doesn't change. Like last week, we talked about God being a rock and God being a shepherd. We can always worship him for that. We can always worship God for what he's done for us on the cross. That's in the past for us. He saved us from these things. We can always worship him for that. And then the growth point for many of us is to worship him in the midst of the tension that we're living in. Bo says often that at any point in time, if you could kind of push pause on your life, that's a unique moment that you can worship the Lord. The, the, the particular circumstances going in, on in your life and the particular state of your heart at that moment, they're unique. You're here on December 3rd, you come back on December 10th or December 17th. Some things have probably changed, maybe just marginally, but some things have probably changed. You're not in the exact same spot. And so you could see every moment as a unique opportunity to worship the Lord, one that's never gonna come again. And to make the choice to praise him in tension. That's courageous. That's saying, I'm gonna stay in the temple. I'm gonna stay here. I'm not, I'm not running away from you. This sounds selfish, but it's true. Second Corinthians 1 calls God the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So it, we shoot ourselves in the foot when our hearts are sick, faint, weak, and we withdraw from God because he's the only one who can actually fix that. It, it, it makes sense that we do, but we're actually then, we're cutting ourselves off from the only one who can actually minister from the source of all compassion and the source of all comfort. So when, when in our heart sickness, we withdraw from him, we're, we're, we're withdrawing from the one who sees us and, wants to come along beside us. So I would just encourage you, what does it look like? Be ready, be alert, watch out, stay in his presence. Make a choice to worship. You can always worship him for who he is. You can always worship him for what he's done. The growth point for many of us is worshiping in, in the midst of that heart sickness or that tension and stay engaged with him. So Anna didn't just show up and lay on the ground in the temple. She actually, she was, she was praying and she was fasting. She was engaged with God. She continued to intercede. And I would encourage you to, the same, to do the same thing. Luke 18, parable of the persistent widow. Anna's that she's that person. She's that widow who kept asking and kept seeking and kept knocking until she saw Jesus. So this might be a bit of a stretch, but stick with me. So Revelation 5 and 8, chapter 5, chapter 8. 
the, the prayers of the people, so that's us, are gathered in these bowls of incense. So that right there should encourage you. None of your prayers are forgotten. None of them are lost. They're all collected in this bowl or these bowls. And then in chapter eight, and this is mind-blowing to me, so it, it's a picture and, and it's revelation, so everything's highly symbolic and you're trying to figure out what's, what's the meat of this. You've got incense, that incense is smoldering and it's poured out on the altar, it's rising up to God and then an angel gathers some of that in a censer like, like a bowl or plate and dumps it on the earth. And then the things that flow out of that after it started in chapter eight, verse six, are some pretty profound judgments on the earth. They're called the seven trumpets, which again, are, they're really, they're highly symbolic, kind of tricky to interpret. But for us, the point is these prayers that have been lifted up to the Lord at some point are poured back on the earth. So I'm gonna say this and you'll have to hear it for what it is. The substance of our prayers that, that makes up the action of God. God's actions on the earth are the substance of our prayers. And for some of you, that's too far. That gives us too much influence over the Lord. But it, it's that, read it. Read Revelation 8. If my people pray, the second Chronicles, then I will do this. God has, in his sovereignty, God has allowed himself to be influenced by the prayers of his people. And that's you. Anna's not any better than you are. For us, I would encourage and challenge, what are the desires in your heart? What are the things you're hoping for? And I would say, can stay engaged with God on those things. And I recognize that is not easy to do. For some of us, we can stay on autopilot. We can continue to say the prayers, but we disengage our heart. And for some of us, we'll have bursts of fervency or faith, but then these long periods where we don't even pray because it's difficult. It hurts. It puts us in tension to say, I'm going to actually engage with you about this. This is something I deeply want to see. I know that you're somebody who can fix it. You're not but I'm gonna to continue to engage you with it. Again, it's, it's a courageous choice and I don't want to belittle the emotional tension that that can create. But I want you to be encouraged by Revelation 8 and by Revelation 5. Your prayers, none of them are lost and you need to know that. And at some point, and it may not be till after you die, those prayers are poured back out in the action of God. Galatians 4 says, at just the right time, the Father sent the Son. Anna's not the only person praying, but I guarantee you, some of what made it just the right time were the prayers that Anna had been praying for 63 years. Whatever that bowl was, the bowl that's marked first Christmas, Anna was putting prayers in that bowl. And at just the right time, the, the result, the answer to those prayers was Jesus being born. And her prayers are, are what 
helps shape that. In Peter, we're told, look forward to the day of Jesus and speed his coming. How do we, like your prayers for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're putting prayers in the second coming bowl. And at some point, that bowl's gonna be full. And it's gonna be poured back out on the earth with the answer being Jesus appearing in the sky and making all things right. So don't quit. It's not easy, but don't quit. Hope is a confident expectation of a better future that's rooted in the conviction that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. That's based on the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Our ultimate hope is that Jesus is going to return and make all things right. And until he does, we wait. And as we wait, we experience the tension in our own hearts of these deep desires that we have that are not yet fulfilled. And I wanna encourage you, take your cues from Anna, someone who's waiting. Continue to stay engaged with him in prayer and continue to put yourself in his presence through worship. All right, here's what we're gonna do. We've got a couple of minutes. If you're sitting on the inside aisle, grab those baskets. We do this every year. Grab a gift tag. I want you to take one. Whether, this, whether you ever come back to Stonebridge or not, I want you to take a gift tag. And this is what I want you to write on it. And I'm gonna give you a second to be a bit thoughtful. There's two things I want. One, I don't want your name. So nobody needs to write your, your name on it. These can be anonymous. I want you to write, what are you hoping for this Christmas? What are you hoping? What is that, what's a deep desire that you have for your future? It may, don't, no, nobody gets to say world peace. This is for you personally. And if you say, well, I'm not hoping for anything, I've got everything I need, then you need to come talk to me. You're not being honest. You're not being honest. What do you wanna see? What do you wanna see? And I want you to write that down. And it can be, don't be super spiritual. If the thing that you need to see is like, if you need a, a raise, then write it down. And then I also want you to write down the name of somebody that you're saying, I hope to see them. And again, this confident expectation of a better future. I hope to see them take a step closer to Jesus. And you don't have to write their full name. You can just write, you can just write dad. You don't even have to write their their any of their, if you feel like that's too um, uh, violating for you to, to share that. If you don't wanna write their name, you just write my dad. Someone who over the next month, you say, I, I, I'm hoping, confident expectation of a better future. I wanna see them taking a step towards Jesus. And what you're doing when you write that on the card is you're committing to pray for those two things for the next month. Recognizing for some of you, that's gonna be, you might not have been 63 years, but you've been 23 years and it's not easy. And, and I'm asking you to re-engage. And I want you to take those cards and on, or those tags and on your way out, you can drop them in these baskets. We have corporate prayer here every Tuesday morning at seven and every one of you are welcome to come, seven to 7.30. And for the next month, this is those people that gather are gonna be praying through these tags. So that's why we don't want your name on it. Nobody will know. Is that good? All right, I'm gonna say a prayer. Bo's gonna come back. We got a couple of minutes for ministry. We'll pray with you about anything at all you have going on. Some of you came in with a need and we want to make sure that we create space for you to bring that before the Lord. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, my heart's sick, like it, it kind of is. I want you to be ashamed about that. We would love to pray with you. We can't fix it. 
but we'll, just, we'll ask God to give you peace and to give you comfort and to reveal his great love for you in the midst of the tension that you're living in. This, even writing on this gift tag for some of you is a hard thing to do. It's ripping off a scab. And I'm grateful that you're willing to do that. We would, if, if that's hard for you, we'd love to pray that God would meet with you over the course of this month. So God, no, I don't know how you're gonna work. I know that you work. And so without expectation in terms of outcome, but with expectation for activity, God, I pray for everybody writing everything that they're writing down. We pray for the people that are, whose names are being listed these ones that we love deeply, that you love more than we do, and we're asking that you would reveal yourself to them more fully this Christmas season. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be stirring a hunger and a thirst in the hearts of these loved ones that can only be satisfied by Jesus. Any place where these loved ones are being blinded by the enemy, we pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of what he's doing and the truth of who you are. God, we wanna see breakthroughs in the lives of our loved ones. And for these circumstances and situations that, that we are bringing before you, we're asking you to work. We're asking you to work together for your glory and our good in these situations. I pray that there be peace, whatever those circumstances are, grace to live in tension. And I pray that just like Anna got to see with her eyes the fulfillment of her hope, I pray that for the men and the women in this room, that we will begin to see with our eyes the things that at this point we've only dreamed of in our hearts. Would you give us grace to stay close to you and to continue to engage you as we wait? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 